If you uh, got here early enough, you saw some slides this morning of some Lego figures displaying the story of Joseph Taylor Etheridge actually put that together. And uh, I think he did it for scouts or class. I don't remember which one. He's actually on a scouts trip this weekend. I'll probably put it up there next week, as you can see. But there's probably a hundred and something slides on there that he created scenes depicting the story of Joseph. And it's really quite fascinating. So get here early next week, and I'll throw it up there again, and you can take a look at it. But as we look at our passage this morning, I think it's uh, wise to put things into their proper perspective. Chapter 40, which is the passage that we will look at this morning, begins by saying, Then it came about after these things. That statement in Scripture is intended to give us a clue that a certain amount of time has passed. And as you look at Scripture and you begin to examine and put some pieces together, you realize that it actually tells us that about 10 years has passed since Joseph was first thrown into the pit by his brothers. So the then teenage boy is now 27 years old. We also learn that it will be another three years before he's able to be released out of the dungeon to, be, to appear before Pharaoh and interpret his dreams. So as we read our passage this morning, I feel like it's very important for us to understand the context within which it is written. It is a context of what is 13 years of slavery and imprisonment. By all accounts, things are not going well for Joseph. In fact, if you look at it, you might even conclude that it's going from bad to worse. But yet, behind all this, God is faithfully at work in the life of Joseph for the very opposite effect. He who began a good work is faithful to complete it. And as we will see this morning, Joseph like Jesus, is learning obedience through suffering. (laughs) Now, you and I hear that, and it sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it? Obedience through suffering. In fact, most of us are not looking to find out what we can learn through times of suffering. We're trying to figure out a way out of suffering. But what we see in the life of Joseph looks a little different. He demonstrates for us what it looks like to keep our eyes focused on God during seasons of despair. His example, in fact, will highlight three very important characteristics of those who trust in the Lord through difficult times. And my prayer is that as we look at these examples this morning, that we will find them evident in our life as well. My hope is that they will encourage us to put our trust in the Lord even during difficult times. I know for certain that there are many who are here this morning who find themselves in a difficult place. And that place that often feels like a prison can be a very dark and desperate world. So listen closely. God's word will give you hope. And watch closely at Joseph's example because he'll give you something to live by. Let's begin by prayer. Father, that is our prayer, that we would see the hope revealed in your word, that we would see the example lived out in the life of Joseph, and that those things would impact us in such a way that it would change us, that it would renew us, that it would make us different 
because of what we hold fast to in the words of your scripture that you have given us this morning. We trust you for that. We find hope in you for that. And we are expectant of that as we open up your word this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. If you're not already there, turn to Genesis chapter 40. Genesis chapter 40 and begin reading with me. Chapter 40, verse 1. It says, Then it came about after these things, the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was furious with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. So he put them in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard in the jail, the same place where Joseph was imprisoned. And the captain of the bodyguard put Joseph in charge of them, and he took care of them. And they were in confinement for some time. Then the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt, who were confined in jail, both had a dream the same night, each man with his own dream and each dream with his own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning and observed them, behold, they were dejected. And he asked Pharaoh's officials, and he asked Pharaoh's officials what, who were with him in confinement in his master's house, why are your faces so sad today? Then they said to him, we've had a dream and there's no one to interpret it. Then Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell it to me, please. Let's stop there and consider what just happened. Two very important men were placed in confinement under Joseph's care. But keep in mind, he's been doing this for ten years now, and so these aren't the first two very important men who've been put down in prison. And how easy it would have been for Joseph to have focused his attention on just simply getting through the day. Like his brothers, Joseph could have feasted on a steady diet of bitterness that allowed the the difficulty of his circumstances to create within him a bad attitude. But our passage reveals something drastically different. In fact, verse 4 says, And Joseph was put in charge of the prisoners, and he took care of them instead of being consumed with self he actually gave himself to serve the needs of these prisoners (laughs) to the point as verse 7 says that joseph even noticed something about them that was heavy on their heart simply by the looks on their faces (laughs) now think about that Think about that, because how easy would it have been for Joseph to become discouraged in his circumstances, to get lost in self-pity, and to to wrongly assume that God had forgotten him. You see, if, if Joseph takes his eyes off of God, he inevitably puts the focus on himself. And the same is true for you and I. It's so easy for us to to turn our attention to our problems to the point that we feel trapped by an illness or an injury that is painfully slow and progressing. Or or maybe it's a chronic disease that, that we have to learn to live with. Sometimes that we can feel lost in loneliness when we lose someone we love. Or sometimes we just get stuck and trying to make it through the day. Terry and I call them the dailies. That routine of life that 
is even difficult to manage at times. And before we know it, we start living just to try to get out of that moment in which we are in at that point in time. This is the place where we can allow our circumstances to determine our attitude to the point that we can't see the needs of others because we're too busy feeling sorry for ourselves. Have you ever been there? I know I haven't. It is a miserable place to be, both for me and for those who are around me. But what we see in the life of Joseph is something different. In fact, it is the first of those attributes that we see in those who put their trust in the Lord. And it is this. We know that we are trusting in God when we care enough to notice the needs of others as more important than our own. You see, trusting God is what gives us the ability to love others even in the midst of our own personal pain. Now, I'm sure that Joseph hoped for something different than living in a dungeon, just like you and I often hope for something different when we find ourselves in difficult situations. In fact, as we will see in this passage, Joseph actually makes that request. He makes that his prayer. But what we cannot afford to miss is the fact that Joseph never became so preoccupied with being somewhere else that he lost sight of where God had him in that moment. Because Joseph trusted in God's future provision, he could focus on the needs of others in his current circumstances. And, and I'm convinced that this is what we see in the life of Joseph, not only because he could examine the look on someone's face and know that something was heavy on their heart. You and I both know that that doesn't happen unless you're seeing life outside of yourself. But I also believe we see that evidenced in the answer that he gives to the problem that they have. He, he says in verse 8, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell it to me, please. Now, think about this. Again, what happened the last time Joseph interpreted a dream? You remember? It was his own dreams. And the last time he did that, he got thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, and then eventually put in jail. Didn't work out so good for him, did it? But here he is again, asked to interpret a dream. And if Joseph is unwilling to trust in God, the first response that he might have given to this request was just to say nothing at all. Don't go there. You see, the fact that he is willing to make the claim with such certainty that God will give him the interpretation tells us that that's a bold step of faith. It tells us that, that Joseph never accepted the lie that God had forgotten him because his actions indicate that he still believes that God will use him. Let's watch how that folds, unfolds. Look at verse 9. Verse 9. It says, So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream, behold, there was a vine in front of me, and on that vine were three branches. And it was budding, and blossoms came out, and its clusters produced ripe grapes. 
Now Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, so I took the grapes and squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and I put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is what the interpretation means. The three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you will put Pharaoh's cup into his hand according to your former custom when you were his cupbearer. Joseph says, tell me your dreams and and I will interpret them according to what God reveals. The cupbearer speaks first upon Joseph's request, and he tells him this scene that involves grapes and branches and and vines and and the cup that he places in, in Pharaoh's hand. In response to Joseph's step of faith, God gives him the interpretation to this dream, and Joseph relays this news to the cupbearer. As it turns out, as we see, it's a a favorable report. The cupbearer has been unjustly accused of seeking the life of the king. And Joseph tells him, in three days you will be justified. It says specifically, the Pharaoh will lift up your head. And basically that's a phrase, as it, it says after that, that you will be restored to your former office as the cupbearer. And then we see an interesting request made by Joseph. Look at verse 14. Joseph says, Only keep me in mind when it goes well with you. And please do do me a kindness by mentioning me to Pharaoh. And and get me out of this house. For I was in fact kidnapped from the land of Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing that they should have put me into into the dungeon. I read this part of our story and I think, thank goodness we see the human side of Joseph, right? That he makes this request. It tells us that just because he is trusting God in his current situation doesn't mean that he can't pray and even hope for something different. This kind of hope is what delivers us from the despair that nothing that we do ever matters. Because notice the conviction in Joseph's request. He says, when it goes well with you. He is confident that what God has told him will in fact come to pass. And perhaps, maybe he was thinking in his mind, perhaps this is the means by which God will answer this consistent prayer for vindication. I think it's important for us to examine this because it gives us a realistic picture between the balance of contentment and hope. On one hand, Joseph is trusting in God in in the place that he had him in that moment to the point that he is able to be used by God by recognizing the needs of others just by the look on their face. He, He wasn't so preoccupied with trying to get out of that place in his own strength that he lost sight of what God might want to do while he was in that place. But at the same time, he could still pray for something different. It's not like he was there because he deserved the punishment, which is exactly what he tells the cupbearer when he says, the only reason that I've been put in prison is because I have been unjustly punished for things that I did not do. But the key is to trust that God is equally as present in the dungeon as he is in the palace, in the hard times as he is in the good times. Joseph 
teaches us that contentment is the expectation that we can prosper no matter where we are as long as we find ourselves in God's presence. This is what allows God to not only be our strength in which we need to endure the difficulty, but the the hope that we have for a future release. Contentment is that place where both of these things coexist. It's like the passage that I read to you last week. You may remember 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6, where it says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. You see, that's a hope and a future redemption, isn't it? It's looking forward to something yet future. But there's another part of that verse that follows, and it says this, Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. That's where you live, right here, right now. Contentment is the place where God is both our future hope and our present provision. And I believe Joseph is learning to live in that place. Look at verse 16. It says, When the chief baker saw that he had, interpre- saw that he had interpreted favorably, he said to Joseph, I also saw in my dream, and behold, there were three baskets of white bread on my head. And in the top basket there was some of all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, and the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. Then Joseph answered and said to him, This is the interpretation. The three baskets are three days. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and will hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh off of you now personally i believe that the baker's delayed willingness to express his dream is likely because of his guilt and i think we get another clue because of what it says in verse 16 when it tells us that because the first interpretation was favorable then he was motivated to ask joseph what his dream might mean but unfortunately the the outcome wasn't the same was it After having described his dream, Joseph learns that within three days, his head will be lifted not just up, but from him. That's a phrase meaning to describe you will die. You will be hanged. In other words, you will be proven guilty of the crime and receive the punishment which is due. In either case... Joseph was committed to telling the truth. And that would be what I would consider another attribute of those who trust in the Lord. We know we are trusting in God when we are willing to tell the truth. Sometimes that's an encouraging truth, and sometimes that's a hard truth. You see, if Joseph doesn't put his trust in God, he would not have given the interpretation to that second dream. The first one was favorable. And when it was fulfilled, it would have given him a good chance to have an audience before Pharaoh because of that favorable result. But when he steps out there and tells the baker that there will be judgment for your sin, that likely ruined all chances of being released. If Joseph wanted to control his own destiny, he would have looked at the baker and said, hmm, that's a hard one. I'm really not sure what that means. But when you get to the Pharaoh, would you just ask him to give me another chance? 
But Joseph didn't do that. He trusted God enough to speak the truth no matter what the personal consequence might have been. And I believe his example tells us the importance of of both sides of of truth-telling. You see, some have wrongly assumed that God has assigned them the unique responsibility to always be the one who gives the hard truth. These are the people who feel like it's their job to correct everyone else's bad doctrine. They justify their critical spirit by claiming that God has called them not to make friends, but to speak the truth. And if you can't handle the truth, then that's not any of their concern. But you see the other extreme as well. People who hide behind the claim that God has called them to be an encourager. And so if someone needs to be confronted, well, somebody else is going to have to do that. Because that's not the gift that God has given them. The Scripture does not give us the ability to make that choice. The instruction, in fact, is very simple and very clear when it says, always speak the truth in love. When we follow that command, we keep that balance. For truth in the absence of love becomes callous judgment. Love in the absence of truth is full of compromise. Or as John Stott once wrote, truth becomes hard if not softened by love. Love becomes soft when not strengthened by truth. Thus God calls us to hold them both together. We know we are trusting God when we are willing to speak the truth in love. We must trust that His Holy Spirit is responsible for that heartfelt conviction that I cannot elicit. My job is not to to guilt someone into a decision, but to let truth be their guide. And if I truly love someone, I will be unwilling to let them be burdened by the deceitfulness of sin when I know when I know that the truth will set them free. But I understand, though, that only God can bring them to repentance, leading them to a knowledge of His truth. Until then, I'll walk with them in love. I believe Joseph keeps that balance and gives us an example of what that looks like. Look at verse 20 now. It says, Thus it came about on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast for all his servants, and he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. And he restored the chief cupbearer to his office, and he put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, just as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Everything happened just as God said it would, and Joseph interpreted for them. Joseph accurately revealed God's revelation to these two men. And it says that when the cupbearer was up, he he didn't remember Joseph. Now, when I hear that, I consider that a moral lapse, not a mental lapse. I I find that impossible to, to understand that somehow it slipped his mind as he was unjustly accused of a crime, unjustly thrown in jail, had a disturbing dream that was then interpreted exactly like it would happen. It's all fulfilled, and then he forgets? I don't think so. That doesn't just slip your mind. And so the question I think we need to ask, and probably Joseph was asking himself at this time, is why did God let this happen? 
Why did God give Joseph this opportunity to step out in faith with seemingly no benefit for having done so? Because I'm sure the news of what happened made its way back to the prison. And so in that regard, Joseph's faith would have been vindicated. He did the right thing. But there didn't appear to be any reward for his obedience. He made a request even. But the answer appears to be silence. Now, I feel certain that many of us have been in that place before. And many of you may be there now. We make a request that seems to be right in alignment with what God would desire, and yet the answer seems to be silence. We wonder if God is ignoring us, or or maybe even worse, that he's forgotten us. Our heart cries out like David's did in Psalm 22 when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken or why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from saving me? My God, I cry out all day. But you do not answer me. We may wonder why he doesn't heal our disease. Why he doesn't rescue our wayward child. Why he called the love of our life suddenly home. I think it's fair to assume that that Joseph may have found himself in this kind of place. Wondering why God's response of silence was what he heard when he was faithfully obedient. This leads us to what I believe is a third characteristic that we see in the life of Joseph, and it is this. We know we are trusting in God when we believe that his promises are true. You see, Joseph had to trust in God's promises even in the midst of his personal pain. He had to believe in God's heart even if he couldn't see God's hand. In an effort to to help us kind of understand this, because I think this is critically important, I want us to go to that psalm that I mentioned earlier. So if you would, turn to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. I'm going to read this out of the Net Bible because I like the way it reads. And let's look at this together. Psalm 22. Let me read again what he says in the beginning when he writes... In this Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? I groan in prayer, but help seems far away. My God, I cry out during the day, but you do not answer. And during the night, my prayers do not let up. Now, one of the things that I want you to recognize about what we see right on the front end of this is that even though David finds himself in a place of confusion and deep pain, where does he go? He goes to the only place where he knows he can find the answer to these questions. My God, my God. It's important for us to understand that this is where our answer begins to unfold, is when we find ourselves in God's presence. I was visiting with a group of men recently. Michael Park was a part of that group. And Michael was explaining to these men how he'd been going through a difficult time lately, facing a a, a difficult trial. And he went on to explain to them why he didn't call these men immediately. He said, in fact, that that was his first thought. That as he was encountering this trial, his first thought was to call these guys and ask them to to pray for him and to, to help walk through this with him. But then he said, I realize something. He says, you guys are good friends. 
but God is my only Savior. And I need to run to Him first before I do anything else. I believe this is what David's doing. His heart is heavy. These are real, deep, felt questions. But he goes to God first. Look at what he does next. Verse 3. It says, You are holy. You sit as king, receiving the praises of Israel. In you our ancestors trusted. They trusted in you, and you rescued them. To you they cried out, and they were saved. In you they trusted, and they were not disappointed. Now, here's what I find significant about what David immediately does next, is he begins to take the focus off of himself, and he looks outside of himself to other people. He says, look at our ancestors. They trusted in you, and they were not disappointed. They believed in you, and you delivered them. You did great things, and I know that's true. I think this is an important point for us to make, that, that first David opens up his heart, and he speaks honestly about what was on his heart. But then he opens up his mind, and he recognizes what God has done in the past in his people who put their trust in him. That's why this book is so important. <laughs> that's why the life of Joseph is so important, because sometimes that's where we've got to start. When we try to answer the questions in our own life, we have to look outside of ourselves and say, well, did he do something for someone else? Look at Moses. Look at Abraham. Look at Joseph. Look at David. Look at Jacob. Look at Paul. Look at Peter. You've got a myriad of examples of God's faithfulness to those who put their trust in him. Look outside of yourself and examine the life of someone else and see how God is faithful. But look at what happens next. Look at verse 9. He says, yes, you are the one who brought me out of the womb and made me feel secure on my mother's breast. I have been dependent upon you since birth. From the time I came out of my mother's womb, you have been my God. Do you see what he just did? He, he turned from what he saw in the life of others to now making it personal in what he has done in the life of David. This is what you did for them and this is what you did for me. And what he looks at is the very basic reality that God created him, that God sustained him. And from the moment of birth, he was dependent upon him. And you know what the implication is at this point in David's prayer? That hasn't changed. I'm equally as dependent upon you today as I was the day you brought me into this world and sustained my life when I could do nothing for myself. That's where I am. But then he goes on. Look at verse 19. He says, But you, O Lord, do not remain far away. You are my source of strength. Hurry and help me. Deliver me from the sword. Save my life from the claws of the wild dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lion, from the horns of the wild, ants, wild oxen. You have answered me. <laughs> David began by saying, You have abandoned me, or at least it feels like that. But then he looks at the life of others and says, but wait, God has been faithful in the lives of his people who put their trust in him. And, and not only that, God has been faithful to me. I've been dependent upon him since the day he created me. And I believe these things he lists in these verses 19 and 20 are real life examples of what he faced as a shepherd. We know from David's story that there were times that God delivered him from the mouth of a lion, from the mouth of a bear. And he's looking at those examples and he says, you answered me. I'm going to trust in you. And look at what he does next in verse 22. 
She says, I will declare your name to all my countrymen. In the middle of the assembly, I will praise you. Your loyal followers of the Lord praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. All you descendants of Israel, stand in awe of him. This is the progression of what happens when we go and put ourselves in the presence of our redeeming God. We find that we can go there and he's not afraid of your hard questions. He's not concerned about your doubt. He's not concerned about the difficulty that you find yourself in. He wants you to speak honestly to him, to open your heart. But then he wants you to open your mind and realize what he's provided for you in the examples of lives of men and women who have been faithful to him and he has been faithful in return. And then make it personal and realize what they have done for him, them is what he will do for you when you put your trust in him to the point that you recognize, as we all do, that even though we may be in a difficult time, every one of us can look back and see, even if there's small moments where God answered our prayers, where he was faithful, where we experienced his love. And we, we hang on to those and we put our trust in him so that he is ultimately the praise on our lips. And you notice how David then invites the whole congregation to join him. Let's all praise the faithfulness of our God. So the next time you find yourself in a situation where you're asking, how do I get through this? When you're in a place of difficulty in your marriage and you think, how do we survive? This is how. Go to God. Find your answer in his presence. Trust in him. Just like uh, Michael Park said, right? There's a lot of good options out there, but there's only one Savior. Run to Him. It reminds me of a story of a group of sailors who were on a boat in the middle of what was a very uh, bad storm. In fact, they were wondering if there was any possible way to get through this. So one of the sailors went down into the captain's uh, cabin and asked him, he said, Captain, are, are we going to be able to get through this? The captain didn't say anything, but just looked at him and kind of smiled. The sailor went back up on deck and called the men together, and he says, I have some good news. He says, I've seen the face of the Savior, of the, of the captain, and, and we're going to be okay. In the same way, you and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, have seen the face of the Savior through his message and ministry on earth. We've seen the face of the Savior, and we are going to be okay. So know that as you put your trust in the Lord, it gives you the ability to see the needs of others is more important than your own. Know that when you trust in the Lord, you will speak the truth in love. Know that when you trust in the Lord, you will believe in His promises and know that they're true, trusting in His heart even when you may not be able to see His hand. What does that great passage say about faith? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not yet seen. Trust in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the example of Joseph's life and just the reality, the realness, the, the humanity of being in a difficult place and wondering how we're going to get through that. Being in a place where maybe we've asked and, and made requests that seemed to be in alignment. Why, why wouldn't you want Joseph out of that prison? 
Why did you give him the interpretation of that dream when in fact it appeared to make no difference to follow you in obedience? But yet all the while you were at work fulfilling what you'd promised. And that is the promise that you've made to us as we humble ourselves before you that you will exalt us in your proper time. And until then, may we cast all our anxiety upon you because you care for us. May we believe in the promise of our future redemption and live in the hope of your present provision. May we examine the life of Joseph and make those truths personal in our life as well. May we put our trust in you. We pray this in your name. Amen.